and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello, I'm Rachel Stonehouse, Policy Research Fellow at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. In this episode of IOM3 Investigates, I'm joined by Libby Peake, Head of Resource Policy at Green Alliance, and Professor Julian Allwood, Director of UK Fires. Julian is a Professor of Engineering and the Environment at the University of Cambridge, and UK Fires published the report Absolute Zero. Libby's work at Green Alliance is focused on achieving ambitious leadership for the environment. She works closely with other NGOs, academics, businesses, and of course policymakers to promote better use of resources throughout the economy. And together today, we'll be looking at the role of resource efficiency in addressing climate change and meeting the 2050 net zero emissions target. Julian Libby, thank you so much for joining me today. So Julian, just to get us started, would you like to tell us a bit more about what UK FIRES is, please? UK FIRES stands for placing resource efficiency at the heart of UK future industrial strategy. Broadly, we've been working in this area for about 15 years. So when we put in this bid, we thought of it as an extension of a long portfolio of work, really motivated by what we learned when Port Talbot was put up for sale in 2016. That was obviously a crisis that occurred just before the Brexit vote and got a great deal of attention over longer than you might have thought. And I think it was related to Brexit interest that that happened. We forecast that that problem was going to occur, and I'm afraid it isn't going away. Port Talbot is still just as vulnerable now as it was then. And the problem is that the world has more primary steel production than it needs. But what we anticipate is a massive shift towards recycling, because that's the only way we can get our emissions down. So the world's market for recycled steel is going to treble in the next 30 years. The world's market for primary blast furnace steel is going to shrink to zero. And that means that what we've been thinking about from an environmental perspective turns out to be critical to future industrial strategy in the UK. So that's why we thought of the bid slightly differently to what we've done before. Previously, we've thought of ourselves as environmental campaigners, but now we think of ourselves as being at the heart of both commercial and government strategy about creating an industry that's compatible with our climate goals. Thanks, Julian. I think that's an interesting point about how framing can make a difference. And Libby, could you tell us about Green Alliance, please? Yeah, of course. So Green Alliance is a charity and think tank that focuses on achieving ambitious leadership for the environment. We've been around for more than 40 years now, and we work across various different areas, including the resource stewardship area, which is the one that I lead. And that has to do a lot with looking at things like circular economy, resource efficiency, trying to ensure that government policy focuses on more than just end of waste, end of pipe solutions, and starts to to really tackle the issues where they're best tackled, which is at the beginning of the material cycle. Thanks, Libby. And shifting away from end of pipe solutions leads us nicely onto what we're here to talk about today. So traditionally, the conversation around net zero has focused on energy efficiency and accelerating the transition to renewable energy. But there's another huge opportunity that's sometimes overlooked, and that's resource efficiency. So Libby, can you explain what we mean when we talk about resource efficiency? Yeah, I think the shortest and catchiest way that we've got to describe it is probably using and losing fewer resources. So resource efficiency is something that happens both at the start of when you're producing materials and, and products, and then also at the end. So in the first instance, putting fewer materials into into products using the right materials for the products that you're you're trying to make and the buildings that you're trying to make and uh, and then at the end of it getting more life out of every product that's made so ensuring things like repairability and durability and uh, that sort of thing and so there's those are really the two sides of resource efficiency that, that that need to be tackled and that unfortunately aren't really tackled to anything like the extent that they need to be. And Julian, this using less and getting more out of products, why is that so important for our journey to net zero? 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I loved uh, the definition that Libby just gave. Ten years ago, I rebranded my research group, the Use Less Group, which I thought was funny. But using less is the core of any industrial mitigation strategy. Um, we've been on a journey with this due to the fact that when we wrote the proposal for the UK Fires Programme, we were focusing on resource efficiency for exactly the reasons that Libby's just explained. But after we got the money and before we could start work, Theresa May had a purple patch in her last three weeks in office and changed the Climate Change Act from an 80% cut in emissions to a 100% cut. And that really changes the world. When it was an 80% cut, it turned out that everybody thought that they themselves were in the 20%. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about householders, truck drivers, the aviation industry, the steel industry, absolutely everybody was confident that they themselves were in the 20%. So everybody else would deal with the 80%. And that's why the 100% cut is so important. There's no escape clause from that. So by the time we actually got going and we had people employed to do the work, we realised that we really wanted to call ourselves UK FISES, zero emissions at the heart of UK future industrial strategy. Um, because it's no longer, resource efficiency isn't enough, it's essential. But I would now almost frame the debate the other way around to say, functioning with zero emissions, the amount of material we're going to produce is going to be so much less than we're used to. The resource efficiency will be core business because we just haven't got, we won't have any other opportunities. Can I just jump in here to, to add to that? I'd say that one of, one of the main things that we've been trying to push over recent years is, is framing resource efficiency as the UK's missing climate policy, because so far government action has focused really narrowly on emissions from production. So they're looking at reducing emissions from buildings once they're built, they're looking at reducing tailpipe emissions and things like that. Uh, and they're ignoring the other sorts of emissions that, that are sort of embodied in buildings that are embodied in products. And that actually are really, really significant in the grand scheme of things. So the UN has some estimates suggesting that resource use drives 50% of global emissions. And so if we're, if we're ignoring that side of the coin, it seems like it will be virtually impossible to reach net zero, certainly on a global scale. And we, we published some research in Less In More Out, which we did with CMAP, that was quantifying some potential savings that you get from resource efficiency. And they, they were quite striking figures because they were actually much greater. Uh, just looking at five sectors, the resource efficiency savings were much greater than most of the other climate policies that government is trying. And so it, it, did, it does feel like uh, you're, they're ignoring half of the, the potential steps to, to reduce emissions. And so we're, we're quite gratified, actually, that, that it is gaining prominence, at least in places like the CCC. The six carbon budget advice did for the first time start making recommendations about resource efficiency and, and recognizing the role that it can play. I think that there's a way to go before even the CCC is, is highlighting the potential that resource efficiency should play, but, but it's great that we're, we're starting to get that into the narrative. Yeah, I agree. It's great to see resource efficiency features more of the climate conversation now. So Libby, you said there's great potential that's unrealised, and it's clear there's a huge opportunity here. You said that measures generally focus in two main areas, using less and getting more out of products. What are some of the specific strategies that can be used to improve resource efficiency? So these are all the traditional things in a lot of ways that you think of when you think of the circular economy. So obviously the circular economy is best understood in contrast to the current linear economy where we take materials out of the ground we make products out of them and use them sometimes really, really briefly. And then often they go back to the ground or they go up in smoke. And so a circular economy is one that's going to keep materials in use at their highest value as much as possible. And the main things that you'd try to encourage if you wanted that sort of approach are things like designing for reuse, ensuring there's repairability, ensuring there are things like remanufacturing, which is quite common with some industrial goods where you make sure that they're repaired and, and they go through the process to stay in really usable for as long as possible. And then also you get things like recycling. That's, that's one thing that is part of the, the circular economy, which is what I think a lot of people think of as the main mechanism, but some of the other steps are potentially more important for certainly consumer good products and, and whatnot. And then there are also other factors, including eco-design. So making sure that products are designed to last and that they use as little energy as possible. So far, eco-design standards, as far as they've been implemented, have mainly concentrated on energy and use, but there's real potential 
to use that sort of process to make sure that we've got products that are that are going to last a long time and that can be repaired if anything goes wrong. And then finally, you've got things like new sorts of business models like leasing and servitization where you're you're not necessarily buying a product, but you're buying a service. And that could, if it's done correctly, result in, in lower material use because you don't need to keep that churn going where you're putting more and more products on the market. You're just delivering a service like mobility rather than getting more and more cars all the time. That was completely brilliant. Um, I, I ha- only want to add that I've never been convinced that the circular economy metaphor is helpful. The circular metaphor talks about recycling. That's obviously what it represents. And that's only one component, as Libby's just said very helpfully. And as a result of it, everybody who's pinned their colours to the mast of circular economy has then spent the rest of their life trying to redefine what the circular economy is. And some academic recently wrote a paper called 104 Definitions of the Circular Economy, which is because they've all realised it's the wrong metaphor and they're trying to talk about something else. So resource efficiency or material efficiency is a much better bracket to talk about all of those strategies that Libby's just mentioned, because the really important ones, the ones that have the most impact, are all about using less. So either designing lighter products, buying or making fewer products, and keeping them from longer. And the circular metaphor doesn't fit those key strategies very well, uh, but actually they're the most important ones. Recycling is of course important, but actually we're already doing it very well. The materials that can be recycled, we're collecting and recycling. The thing that we can do better is to upcycle rather than downcycle, and particularly in the steel industry, that's a big opportunity. But the ones that we really want to focus on are about design and user choices, rather than this sort of feeling that there's a magic uh, green badge, you can draw a green circle on your marketing brochure and then you've solved the problem. The circular economy isn't a get out of jail free card, but a more thrifty and efficient use of materials, conserving their value. Those are the right things that we want to be focusing on. Yeah, I definitely agree that the circular economy term has been co-opted by people who aren't using it in a way that I would recognise as being circular economy. I still think that if you are true to the original concept of the circular economy, you would get those things like reuse, repair, remanufacturing before you got to the final outer loop of of recycling. But personally, this isn't part of a lot of conceptualisation of how people portray the circular economy, but I like to envisage it as having a bullseye in the middle of reduction, because I do think that 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 does absolutely have to be the main aim of any sort of approach that's going to bring resource use in line with planetary boundaries. But I think a lot of people, when they approach the circular economy, are are ignoring that side of things, and and that does definitely have to change. I love the bullseye. Anglia Water have a very nice pyramid that they use. They had a revolution in their construction programme when they discovered that the default problem is that the capacity of their pumping stations, their infrastructure was too low. And they'd fallen into a pattern of the solution being to replace it with something larger. And then a few pioneers within the company developed a pyramid of solutions and the top of the pyramid is don't build anything. And that's absolutely great. How fantastic that a construction group has as their top aim not building anything. And what they meant was, let's look at it and see if we can squeeze more out of what we've got. Can we get a bigger pump in? Can we expand the capacity in other ways so that we don't have to build new buildings? So the bullseye is great, but the top of the pyramid is the same. Don't make anything else is the number one strategy. Yeah, I can definitely get on board with that as well. I like the idea of the bullseye too and highlighting the importance of reducing what's put in as well as the strategies mentioned that keep things going around the loop for longer. So thinking about some of these strategies you've both mentioned, what are some of the key sectors where we could see a significant impact of implementing these? If we put the zero emissions lens on it, then that also becomes rather striking, actually. One of you used the phrase net zero, and that's being used in politics as if there were some negatives But we should be clear about that. There are currently no meaningful negatives. The only one that we have available is planting trees. But if you plant a tree, you get a one-off benefit because once a forest is established, it's carbon neutral. It absorbs carbon when the trees grow. It releases it when they're cut down and burnt or they rot at the end of their life. So if we doubled the total area of forest in the UK, which is a strategy way beyond anything anybody has discussed, that would capture two years of emissions only 
after which there would be no further net benefit. If you think about thermodynamics, then if you use energy to suck carbon out of the air with a magic hoover, you will always use more energy to take it out than you gained when you put it there in the first place. So there are no meaningful negatives. That's why the report's absolute zero rather than net zero. So once you realize that, then that means that all industrial processes in the future have to be powered either by non-emitting electricity or by biomass, or they have to have a magic uh, negative emissions technology attached to them, but there aren't any. So therefore, the only industry that will be allowed to operate in the UK uh, must be powered by non-emitting electricity. So that rules out all primary steel production. And actually, it also rules out hydrogen production of steel as well, because hydrogen is a very inefficient carrier of electricity, and we just won't have enough spare electricity to do hydrogen production. So the only steel we'll have is made by recycling in a purely electric process. We will have no cement, and the construction industry is struggling to face up to that. We ran a workshop on it just before Christmas, and we're about to publish a report about the brilliant set of commercial opportunities that creates, because of course we are going to want to attach structures to the ground, we're going to want to repair things, we're going to want to build uh, new renewable installations, but the law says we will have no cement in the UK. There are no non-emitting versions of cement that are ready to scale in a meaningful way. All plastics production is currently linked to the way that we refine oil. Now we can do it with non-emitting electricity, uh, but it requires completely new plants. And it's going to take more energy to do it that way than it does if we could do it in co-production with oil. But it would be illegal to sell oil. So therefore, we're going to have currently no plastics until we electrify the production. Paper, few. We're all right with paper because it's actually largely powered either by its own biomass or by electricity at the moment. Of course, we won't have as much electricity as we want, so we'll have less paper. And aluminium, there will be no virgin production of aluminium because the process emissions associated with the anodes that are used to reduce bauxite to alumina, we can't replace. But we will be able to recycle aluminium. So taking that bold story, what we've put into law at the moment says no primary seal, only recycled seal, no cement and no substitutes, no plastics unless we start electrifying the process very rapidly, paper will be fine, and only recycled aluminium. And those are the five big materials that we have to care about. So that's really what all of our work at the moment is about, is trying to draw attention to that and to see it for what it is as a tremendous opportunity for growth in the industries that then respond to that reality. And just to, to talk about some specific sectors, Julian mentioned construction, and that's that the one that we've identified that has the biggest potential to improve how it uses resource use. The analysis that we did looked just at five sectors. So it was, it was at construction, it was at vehicle manufacturing, it was at food and drink. Um, electronics and appliances and at clothing and textiles and so those were chosen because they do offer some immediate and obvious opportunities to improve resource use and the associated emissions but they're definitely not the only sort of sectors where you would potentially see some savings from resource efficiency um, so we'd anticipate that if you if you did that analysis for other sectors as well you'd, you'd find additional savings not least things like chemicals and and, and whatnot and so the things that we were modeling were all things that are, they're not major overhauls in the economy. These are things that are, that are possible without changing things too massively. And so again, I think if, if there were some even more fundamental shifts in how we use resources and how we use products, the, the savings again would be much, much larger. And I think part of the part of the issue and part of the thing that we really need to tackle isn't just the fact that we need businesses to do the right thing. Obviously, we need government to do the right thing and to set an ambitious framework for action, which they certainly haven't done so far. But we also need to get people on board and to get them using the products and the services as they should to, to best deliver the savings. And it's a bit like energy efficiency. I think government has kind of got the idea that you can't just know what the technical solutions are. You have to have people adopt them and be willing to go along with it. And I'd say that the, this is an issue that's probably even bigger with resource efficiency because it, it's a much more wide ranging topic and, and you, you will need to understand how people behave in the system and, and to get them to implement the, the right behaviours to deliver those savings as well as government and business. I, I think that's really helpful and there are three big stakeholders aren't there? There's government, there's business and there's individuals 
And where we've been for 20 years is that each group has said, well, I won't move first. So when the other two move, I'll follow. And I think that's worth thinking on because it gives a moral responsibility to us as individuals. We do have more influence than we realise because government waits for see a social movement and then copies it. Traditionally, government hasn't led on any form of social restraint. Businesses need to have some confidence that it's worth investing, that there's a market there and there's a regulatory framework that's stable. And the governments need to know they're not going to get voted out if they change it. So I think we are stuck in that kind of locked in position. And the way out of it is for movements to begin where people show that we can do things differently, that that's what creates a market. It creates the confidence in government and it creates a kind of social wave. So what we're trying to do is to find ways to sort of release an energy that can then amplify and grow in these areas. I think some of them are ones that as individuals, we hold the power. So within the food and drink sector, half of the emissions come from meat and dairy. It's only beef and lamb. So beef, lamb and dairy, there are no substitutes and we have to cut them out of our diets. Now, actually, I think you can see that beginning to happen. Veganuary was more prominent this year than ever before. And among the people I know, whether they're green or not, the amount of beef and lamb consumption is going down. The rest of food and drink is really, really difficult to understand as a private individual because it's such a complex supply chain to understand what causes emissions, what interventions I could make. It's virtually impossible to give sensible guidance to somebody about how to tune their shopping basket to have a lower emissions lifestyle because everything is so dependent. So I feel the rest of it actually does depend on government and business action. But that will happen once the market is there, once we've shown that by our choices on lamb, beef and dairy, and by preferring plant-based foods and so on, are creating a social wave, then the government and business will be able to follow. And I think that's kind of across the patch. There are some things that depend on us. Flying is a very good one. So flying depends on individuals. But then the truck system depends on government and businesses. Individuals have no direct influence about the way that trucks develop. So within those three stakeholders, everybody feels that the other two should move first. But I think we can grab hold of the things that we can influence directly, knowing that each action we take is a stone creating a ripple that turns into a wave. Doing the right thing helps other people to do it and it will grow. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely true. You do get uh, positive feedback when the different groups are, are pulling in the same direction. And I think we've seen things like the outcry against plastic pollution, that the, the power of public outcry does drive businesses. In, in that instance, uh, I think one of the main things that we're concerned about is that it's quite a narrow outcry that isn't necessarily driving business towards a, a holistic and systemic change. And so the, there has to be a lot more to do with educating both businesses, but probably people as well about the, the impacts of what they do. And and problems to do with throwaway culture more generally and not just single use, which is one of the big things that we've been focusing on over the last two years for the Circular Economy Task Force. Because at the moment, you're, you're getting an approach from business and, and government that's really quite narrow, that's looking to take plastic out of a dysfunctional system and in a lot of instances, replace it with other materials that are equally as unnecessary. And I think that that's in large part driven by the public outcry, just about the one issue. And so there are certainly things that need to happen in terms of educating the public about various impacts and getting them to care more about other aspects of plastic pollution rather than just the, the one small bit that they're focused on at the moment. And then that could drive better business behavior. And I think some of the interesting things that you're finding coming out of things like the UK Climate Assembly is that the, I think their number one recommendation is they wanted better information. Like They want to be better informed. And if people are better informed and if businesses can then act on people's better informed concerns, I think that would also help drive things in the right direction. I think that's absolutely right. The sense of scale is absolutely critical to making progress towards zero emissions, and we don't have it. So the plastic drinking straws are an issue for litter, but they're totally irrelevant to climate change. It's less than 0.1% of plastic production goes into drinking straws. Carrier bags actually are also not particularly important for climate change. Within the shopping, it's the drinks bottles, not the carrier bags that matter. But actually, construction is the big user of plastic, and it's not even visible. So I think with what Libby said is right about motivating people with good information. And in a sense, because of that, I'm less concerned about the throwaway culture and more concerned about people carrying that information into their influence at work. So at home, we don't directly buy any steel or cement, but a half of all industrial emissions are making just those two materials. 
Those are decisions that happen at work, but we're all there as the same great set of people when we've got our work clothing on rather than when we're sitting around the breakfast table. And I think we want that social motivation to carry into the workplace so that when somebody in the company says, we're going to build a new building, everybody around the discussion says, well, do we need a new building? Why can't we just carry on with the one we've got? If we are going to build one, how do we guarantee it has a minimum 200-year lifestyle? What's the smallest impact we can possibly have with it? And I think that's where a social motivation at work could have a much greater effect than we can have when we're in our households, because we just don't touch some of the high-impact decisions at home. I think it's quite clear that resource efficiency has a huge role to play in helping us achieving emissions reductions right across a huge range of sectors, from construction to manufacturing and plastics. And Libby, I think that's a really important point that we need to avoid looking at things in isolation and considering a systemic approach. So on a similar vein, we mentioned right at the beginning that resource efficiency is sometimes overlooked in climate conversations. And considering that alongside the points just now about plastic waste, it's so important that we link up the conversations around resources and waste management, resource efficiency and climate policy. I suppose one of the things that we try to do is to highlight the impact of production of things like electronics. Because you're right, people do just see, think of the, the problems with electronics to be one of waste. And even then, I don't think they realise the scale of the problem. The UK produces the second highest amount of electronic waste per person in the world, second only to Norway. And I'm not sure why Norway's is higher, but it's it's higher than in the US. We get through electronics at an alarming rate. And so if people knew about that, they'd see a pile of electronics and they'd think, oh, that's a shame. That's a big pile of waste. But what they don't realize is that pile of waste is also associated with a much, much larger pile of waste and emissions that is associated with production. So if you look at a mobile phone, the mobile phone is going to emit about 60 kilograms of CO2 emissions during its production. And then it uses about a tenth of that every year of use. So, so the actual emissions are much, much heavier in the production phase. And then also, if you look at things like the resources that have gone into it, uh, I can't remember the, the exact figures, but there's not very much in, in the way of metals. Metals is a, a big portion of what's in the phone, but there's many times the amount of ore has to be got through to get the metals that go into the phone. So there's a trail of emissions and waste that's left behind every product that people don't know about and they don't see. And so that's something that we do try to highlight so that, that hopefully the public can start to realise that the most important thing is to ensure that you've got long lasting products so that you don't have to keep producing and don't have to keep making that big pile of waste and emitting all of those emissions during the production phase. There's a wider question behind this, which I've always found quite difficult about whether we should focus on emissions or whether we should take a broad basket of indicators in sustainability. When I started in 2000, I ran a group called Sustainable Manufacturing. And I found after six years, I was lost because sustainable meant everything. And it didn't matter what you proposed. You could always think of an indicator which hadn't got better. You, know, you may be using less waste, but are you supporting women's education in Africa? And by sort of bringing all of these things together, it had created a confusion where any action was good and also bad. So you couldn't make any progress. And of course, manufacturing was important, but too small a part of the solution space. Design and use is at least as important. So I chose to focus specifically on emissions and partly though having one objective function makes my life comprehensible and dealing with multiple things is, is more difficult. But I think there's a reason for it, which is that it's global and it doesn't have any natural stakeholders. Nobody's lobbying in a direct way. All the other issues do have a local constituency, whether it's water pollution, waste, biodiversity or tree loss, whatever it is. There are more local lobbies for those. So I still feel justified in prioritising emissions over everything else in what we're doing, trying to be aware of those other things. So for me, I'm going to stick to having emissions as my single metric, but try and make sure that while we look at that, we're not creating massive negative effects on other areas. Biomass is where is the absolute core of that interplay, I think. So I probably would say this because I concentrate on resource policy and I'm head of resource policy, but I'm increasingly of the opinion that the real key, the one metric that people should be taking much more seriously is resource use. And that's because resource use drives so much of all of the other indicators that you might look at. So the, the I said already, the UN says it's associated with 50% of emissions, but it also says that it drives that, that resource extraction and processing drives 90% of biodiversity loss around the world, as well as water stress. 
and it's obviously quite often associated with issues to do with pollution and all of these other things that, that we want to measure. I think I think it doesn't get the recognition as being being a key driver. And if we cracked resource use, we would do so well on all of these other metrics. I like that. It is very helpful with the caveat of wanting to recognise the different scales of different resources. So that idea that half of the world's emissions are driven by resource use, that's right, but half of that's food and agriculture and half of it is industrial production. And the solution spaces are very different from that. So I think that's where I have a slight concern as to whether that catch-all is helpful. It can also, of course, become corrupted by the fact that the largest resource is water and the second largest is sand and rock. And that's actually not particularly important. So we need to focus on the ones that we care about for the end goals. But as a kind of single way of framing the whole debate, actually what you've just said was new to me, Libby, and very helpful. And I think that's absolutely right, that there's different sort of resources. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's quite difficult to get an overarching target that's going to drive the right sort of action. And so we have said, yeah, you, you do need to target specific resources as well as having an overall target. And in particular, I'd be thinking about things like critical raw materials, which are potentially used in really small quantities, but in various products, but are going to be absolutely vital for driving things like the low carbon economy. And so having a specific approach to things like rare earth elements and cobalt is going to be necessary rather than just having a one big overarching target to reduce resource use, because then you would do things like you just look at the, the easy wins rather than the more targeted interventions that are going to be needed. Yeah, absolutely. Not only do we need to reduce resource use or material use to reduce emissions directly, but better use of material is also important because they're needed for the transition and other key climate policies. Julian, you mentioned the report Absolute Zero, which looks at how the 2050 target can be achieved. Would you like to tell us a bit more about that and the role that resource efficiency will need to play? So our focus is on zero emissions and getting there very rapidly in 29 years. I've talked about the fact that there are no negatives and over that timescale there will be no significant negatives. But I think there's a really important issue that we haven't raised in this conversation so far, which is about rates of change. The Climate Change Committee and its advice to government is very heavily dependent on the deployment of new technologies that don't currently exist at any scale in the UK. The number one that they're promoting is carbon capture and storage. And that sounds fine on paper. And if you're an economist and you hear about a technology, you can value it, think of it as investment. So you trade off what the investment is and what the return is, and it looks like it's cost efficient. But deploying these things is a really, really big project. We know that when you think of big civil engineering projects around the country, the replacement road bridge crossing the fourth in Edinburgh uh, took 14 years to build. In 2004, the Scottish government discovered that the previous suspension bridge had lost 10% of its strength due to corrosion. So it was an emergency and they went as fast as possible with a mature technology. But it took 14 years to build the new one. And for the first eight years, no spades hit the ground because they had to consult with the public about financing, about access, about design, about environmental, social concerns and so on, all that you want to have in a democracy. Then the construction, of course, took a bit longer than planned. Now, that's a 200-year-old mature technology, and it took 14 years. Hinkley Point C has obviously took a long time to get started, and all the news about it is about further delay in its arrival. So just think, between now and 2050, how many new nuclear power stations are going to open? Well, I think the government's appetite for opening, even commissioning the start of new projects before Hinkley Point finishes is going to be very limited because they're going to worry about the political risk of committing to something before that one's proved. And we know other things take a long time. Crossrail still hasn't opened. HS2 is, to my taste, a white elephant, but it's one that's expensive and taking a long time and going over budget as well. Big projects, big installations of infrastructure take a long, long time. And we don't know how to accelerate it in a democratic process. We have to be able to consult on it. We have to evaluate them socially. We've seen that with fracking, that fracking is technically proven in other countries, but the British public hasn't wanted to adopt it. The zeitgeist at the moment is against fracking. So I raise all of this because our plans for mitigation are heavily dependent on the massive deployment of technologies with which we have no experience in the UK. They all exist at some small scale somewhere, but that doesn't matter. We aren't trying to do an Apollo project here. We're not trying to put one person on the moon. We're trying to change the whole of everything that we do. 
So my primary concern and what motivated us in absolute zero is that we're depending on this huge deployment and that's stopping us doing things that we could do now. We should be doing the exact reverse. We should be planning for mitigation based on things that we know we can scale now. And then if some of these other magic beans arrive and the technologies are there to scale, that's terrific. We'll use them when they become available. But doing nothing and banking everything on them arriving is a suicidal strategy. And you know that when you look out of the car's window and you see the cars going past. Cars have got heavier in the UK every year since we signed the Climate Change Act and now weigh 12 times more than the people inside them. We're knocking buildings down faster than we ever have done before, and so on. We simply aren't waking up to all the things that we can do now. So in absolute zero, we wanted to try and wake everybody up and say, let's look at what mitigating climate change, what zero emissions means with things that we know we can deploy now, and accept that that will mean a period of restraint. We won't have all the energy we want to have. We won't be able to build buildings in the same way we have done in the past. Later, new technologies will make that easier, but in the short term, they won't be there. It's so unlikely that they're there that it would be a huge risk to do that. So all our focus now is on revealing the commercial opportunities that come out of that uh, view. We are going to be short of electricity in 2050. We aren't going to have spare biomass. We aren't going to have any major negative emissions technologies. But we're going to be here. We're going to be talking to each other. We're going to be trading, buying things, selling things. We're going to go to work. What's it going to look like? And who's going to prosper within that uh, different future? And I think as we reveal that, we'll start revealing opportunities for different policy mechanisms, different entrepreneurship, which will be much more secure path to develop, delivering zero emissions than the, frankly, fantasy-based one that we're on at the moment of imagining magic beans fertilized by unicorns blood will take the problem away for us. They may in future, but they won't in the timescale we have available. Thanks, Julian. And as you say, 29 years is not a huge amount of time to achieve this target. We really need to be maximizing the opportunities we have and resource efficiency can play a really big role in that. Are there examples of specific good practice, maybe in other countries that we can look to where resource efficiency strategies are being implemented and effectively reducing emissions? Great question. If there was someone that was doing it absolutely right, then that would make our job a lot easier because we could just point towards that country. I'd say that there are various initiatives that are going around that we could definitely learn from. I'd say countries like France are being much more ambitious in terms of their product policies to make sure that things like repairability and durability are incentivized. You've got even cities as well that are launching circular economy initiatives, even in the sort of immediate aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic coming on, Amsterdam launched a big circular economy initiative, which was focusing a lot on food, but also on materials, trying to drive their consumption to within planetary boundaries. So I think that that's something that you could potentially learn from. I'd say that there are other countries that have better approaches to tax policy. And that's something that the big concern of mine at the moment, because I think one of the reasons why some actors aren't necessarily taking the action that they could now is because the incentives aren't right for them to do so. And the tax system does definitely have some, a lot to answer for on that front. Even if you're just looking at things like construction, like the construction industry is massively incentivized to tear down buildings and put up new buildings in their place because of the tax system, because you don't pay any VAT on new build, but you do on repairs and refurbishment. And I think that there's a, a real growing consensus that that's perverse. And the tax system is driving the exact opposite behavior that we want to see. So every year, 50,000 buildings are demolished and there are more than 200,000 long-term empty buildings now, which the, the economics just don't make sense to, to repair those. And I think addressing those sorts of perversities and, and getting the tax system playing its role will help incentivize people to make the right choices. Another area where we've been trying to, to focus attention is on things like VAT on labor um, for, for repair. Um, so there are some other countries which, in line with EU tax rules, have decreased the, the VAT down to 6% that you pay for repairing some white goods and some, some bicycles and things like that, sometimes some quite niche streams. But actually, one of the things that Brexit does allow for is for much more variation in VAT. And I think you're getting, you're getting a lot stronger calls for that. So we've said that if you want to incentivize a repair industry, you really do need to decrease the cost of labor because the cost of repair is something that really 
prevents people from taking those steps. So it prevents those businesses from popping up and then it also prevents people from playing the role because if, if it costs as much to fix a phone as it does to buy a new one or to fix a washing machine as it does to buy a new one, you can almost guarantee that, that people will just buy the new one because it's easier and it's newer and shinier. And so we've got the incentives wrong there. And I think the tax system could definitely be overhauled. And there are certainly other countries that are doing more with tax than the UK is. Libby knows much more about that than I do. That was incredibly helpful. I think the there is no single exemplar, but in every area, there are people doing better than we are. So one of the questions we're looking at in our research group at the moment is whether there is some form of social network that we could help to stimulate where people could find in the area that they're active or where they have influence, best practice for where people have done a tax change or have created a city-based initiative. Because I think if we could develop a way of sharing experience, that would create an amplification that would be faster. Um, we know that it's much easier to copy than to lead. And once you realize that in every one of these areas, somebody has already gone a bit further than you thought you were going to go. And if, the, if you could access their experience, then it would allow you to take another step uh, forward. Yeah, thanks. Maybe it was great to hear about how some of the measures we talked about right at the start are being implemented and also about the role the tax can and should play. And Julian, I think that's a helpful point about the benefits of sharing experience. And as you said earlier, emissions are global. They don't respect boundaries. So when we talk about resource efficiency measures in the UK, what impact does that have on a global scale, Libby? I think resource use is something where the UK's impact is a lot bigger than we necessarily realise domestically. It's associated with things like consumption emissions. So consumption in the UK, because the extraction and production processes so often occur outside of the UK, the actual impact of consumption in the UK is quite often felt abroad. That's one of the reasons why we're, we're glad that consumption emissions are getting more attention these days um, because the, the UK is one of the largest importers of carbon in traded goods. The UN process puts emissions based on where they're emitted though actually the UK's net zero targets those are only for whatever is emitted in this country not for the emissions that were responsible throughout supply chains and if you included those sorts of emissions our carbon footprint would actually be 50 percent higher and in a way that does make the task more daunting but it does actually amplify the impact of improving resource use in this country. So if you looked at the five different sectors that we were analysing in terms of their carbon impact from resource efficiency, the only thing that we presented was the territorial emission savings that they'd have because that's how emissions are counted at the moment and that's what the government targets are, are for. But in some instances, if you included some of the, the outside emissions, the emissions that happened along supply chains, the impact of reducing resource use in the UK could be something like 50 times greater for electronics because the, the emissions occur abroad. And so I think that that's one of the great things about resource efficiency is that it, it does offer the UK an opportunity to lead and to reduce not only the carbon impact, but also the biodiversity and pollution and water impact abroad by taking steps here. I think it was interesting near the start of the pandemic that quite a lot of manufacturing stopped in China and there was a visible difference in the air quality. It got a lot of attention and I think it gave something tangible, which I think made some people stop and think a bit more about emissions in the global context. And it is, it's countries like India and, and China which are emitting a greater proportion of the emissions that UK final demand is ultimately responsible for. There are other countries like, like the EU and the US where we get, we get some of our emissions, but the, the resources and the, the carbon footprint that we're responsible for quite, quite often occur to, in countries where uh, in some instances uh, people are like wagging their finger at China, saying China has really high emissions. Well, yeah, they do, but that's because they're producing the world's goods. And so everybody does actually need to take responsibility for that. And, and a much fairer way of attributing emissions it would be to, to do it based on consumption. And I think that there are definitely barriers to that. And we wouldn't call for uh, territorial emissions to be replaced by consumption emissions, but it would be definitely useful to have targets for consumption emissions to run alongside territorial emissions. And, and it's interesting to see that the likes of the CCC are increasingly uh, looking at consumption emissions and I know that the IPCC working group three on mitigation they're coming out with a report later this year uh, where consumption emissions are going to be placed on equal footing to territorial emissions and that's definitely a really good development. Yeah and that's politically inevitable as well because once China um, commits as it says it's going to then obviously they'll be negotiating based on consumption rather than production emissions because they're a net exporter 
Sadly, the way that we framed the Climate Change Act at the moment in line with this uh, accounting practice means that the two things that have had the most effect on the UK's emissions are both actions taken by Mrs Thatcher. Uh, the switch from coal to gas has genuinely um, reduced emissions. The closure of UK industry has not. That's just shifted the emissions elsewhere. Um, but it's important that those are the two big things that have happened since 1990. Our installation of wind and solar and our capturing of methane at landfill sites uh, to use it for energy are good things that were motivated by climate change, but they add up to a less effect than those two big ones that were not motivated by climate change at all. And I say that because I think it's the UK government likes to make this statement about our um, emissions having fallen uh, by 42% while our GDP has grown. But that, those two are totally uncorrelated statements. Um, we haven't, if you like, shown a green growth miracle. All we've done is to switch from production to services and we switch from coal to gas, both of which had an economic benefit within them. Um, but I think the international context is changing. The fact that President Biden says he's going to take it seriously, that the Chinese government says they're going to take it seriously, means that we might see a very rapid change. And one of the opportunities created by the consumption-based view is that it has a much higher incentive for UK innovation to supply goods in a different way with much greater resource efficiency with no emissions, because they're not going to be out-competed by people who are still able to add emissions to their production elsewhere. Um, so I very much hope that we go to a joint account and we look at both numbers, because it will create a much different and better incentive for industrial growth in the UK. And just as we wrap up our podcast today, we talked earlier about the three main actors involved. So to close, what steps do you think can be taken next or which actor should we be looking to to do more? I mean, I think all the actors could be doing more uh, <laughs> is, the, is the main message. I mean, we're a, we're a policy focused think tank, so our, our efforts do tend to, to focus on what government can do. And I'd say that what, what government is doing in this space isn't up to the challenge, anything like up to the challenge. They have a reasonable strategy quite helpfully reframe away from just looking at waste and starting to talk about production and starting to talk about resource use overall. But if you look at the policies that have come out of that, they're all focused on recycling still. Uh, and it, it's, it is like they, they get stuck. Uh, they get stuck on that final end of life phase. And we really need to, to get them to, to, to focus on the, the beginning and actually reducing resource use overall. And one of the things, I think one of the barriers that prevents that from happening is that the, the resources at brief is held by DEFRA, but uh, the, the industrial brief is obviously held by Bayes. And I know that they talk, I know that the civil servants between the different departments talk to each other and try to try to push the same sorts of policies. But I think that there does need to be a lot more work there, a lot more emphasis on embedding resource reduction in the business department and, and getting them to see the benefits. Uh, I think it's a, it's a process that's slowly starting. And then the other thing to say about coming out of the, the government is that the, they are actually in the process of creating targets, long-term targets for resource use through the Environment Bill. And I think a lot remains to be seen about how effective that is because they, they've got them at the beginning of the material cycle, they've got a resource productivity target that they're developing and they've got a waste prevention target that they're developing. And, and those things are both right. But our, our main concern about the resource productivity target is that it, that is a measure that's still tied to economic growth or economic output. And it's not necessarily going to deliver absolute reductions in resource use. And I think given the scale of the challenge, they do need to either overhaul that, that approach or to, to add a supplementary target to, to reduce resource use as well and not just to improve resource productivity. Again, it was fantastic. Um, the Prime Minister announced in December that the UK was going to cut its emissions by 45% from 2020 to 2030. And that is uh, absolutely right. That's in line with our overall targets and it's in line with the science. It's also in line with what uh, Christina Figueres, the former uh, lead on the UNFCC, has been promoting with uh, what she called an exponential roadmap that we should halve our emissions um, every decade as on the path to zero emissions. So I was really delighted to see that. And I think we should now be trying to hold the government to account on its delivery. So there is no delivery authority on zero emissions and there obviously has to be one. We delivered the Olympics on time and on budget because there was a delivery authority whose job it was to do that. 
nobody in government has the responsibility to deliver that 45% cut. So as individuals, we can be part of it because we can express the need for social change. Governments are very responsive to what people do. They have lots of focus groups trying to find out what people care about. So we can influence that by our voices and by our actions in particular. We can influence it at work by trying to influence the way that corporate decisions are taken. And I think also by trying to trigger the entrepreneurship that's compatible with a 45% cut in emissions in nine years' time. That is a really, really demanding target. Given what I said about technology deployment, it's pretty obvious that there won't be any major new power stations of a new design operating at scale over that time. That's not going to deal with the problem. So we've got to cut our emissions by 45% based on technologies that we already use today. And I think using all of our influence in all the spheres in which we operate as voters, as employees, as householders, we could all be doing vastly more. But let's embrace that target and then hold everybody to account for the delivery of it. So just to finish off our podcast for today, what role do you think professional bodies such as IOM3 can play? IOM3 is a fantastic communicating organisation. And I think we've both said that we need more and better information. That is across the whole level of society at the moment. It's amazing how few people can even separate the words energy, emissions and electricity accurately. And in political discussion, they're treated as if they all mean the same thing. So clarity on what the problem is, clarity on what the interventions are, what could happen now, what could happen in the future. This would be a vast contribution. We're all involved in that forms of education for both what I do in the university and what Libby does with the Green Alliance. Communication is critical, but IOM3 has a voice which could be very helpfully deployed for that at schools, as much as in professional circles, as much as for the public, as much as for policymakers. Simply clarifying what's big, what's small and what's possible now would be a vast service. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. The spreading spreading information is, is a key role that uh, IOM3 can play. And I think the, the only other thing that I'd add is that also spread, spreading best practice amongst members, because obviously you'll you'll have a lot of members who have a lot of innovative techniques and approaches. And, and if we can get as many people adopting as many of those existing approaches, as, as Julian's been saying, uh, that will massively help increase the, the rate of progress and, and make all of, uh, all of our environmental goals much easier to achieve. So I think it's very clear from everything we've talked about today that resource use and resource efficiency has clearly got a very vital role to be playing in addressing climate change. It's been great to explore some of the different opportunities and options with you both. So all that's left for me to say is Olivia Julian, huge thanks for joining me today and for the interesting discussion. Goodbye. Thank you very much, Rachel. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.